powered by the National Screen Institute. This is The Hats We Wear, and I'm your host, Emily Palmer. Welcome to this limited podcast series, where you'll hear from some incredible individuals who happen to be the alumni of the National Screen Institute. Throughout the show, we'll talk successes, failures, highs and lows, and the journey of life as guests navigate the creative media industries in Canada and beyond. This show is produced and distributed from Treaty 1 territory. We acknowledge the land that is occupied and their traditional keepers, Anishinaabe, Cree, Dakota, and the Métis. This is The Hats We Wear. Have you ever wondered how horror films are developed? Where do these monsters come from? How do scary stories come to life? We have all watched a scary movie at least some point in our lifetime. My favorite scary movie to this day is Beetlejuice. I mean, it's technically considered a comedy or a fantasy, but when I was younger, it scared me to bits. But I loved how the film always brought me into another world and how it would tell a story through ghosts and the paranormal. But how do these ideas come about? How do filmmakers creating horror films tell a story by reaching an audience in such an alternative way? Within this episode, we'll hear from NSI graduate Karen Lamb. We'll hear about her experiences of developing horror films and listen to why she gravitates towards telling scary stories. I'm a failed witch. So even from when I was five years old, I read all the, you know, basically, I don't know if you still had it in elementary school, but we used to have scholastic books and you used to be able to order all these books. And mine were all on basically young witches. So I really, truly wanted to be a witch. And I I spent countless hours on my living room floor on the rug, hoping to make it levitate. Like I was truly thinking that, that. Anyway, so I'm a failed witch. This is Karen Lamb. She's a filmmaker based in Vancouver. She's developed films like Evangeline and The Curse of Willow Song. She also developed the film The Cabinet through the NSI Drama Prize program in 2006. Before developing horror films, Karen was an entertainment lawyer. Producing, actually, in film and television is, in a lot of ways, um, so technical as far as negotiating and you know paperwork and that that I think that I actually feel that we should be going to recruit more people from business degrees and law degrees to become producers that was my entry into it and um, because we have a lot of creative people out there and not enough producers who are just really going to dig into the paperwork and into the negotiations and so much of our work as producers is that And I guess in a lot of ways, you know, when sometimes you think of law as being not particularly creative, but I would say that a good majority of my legal friends going into it, you can't make it through law school without that creativity. We're telling stories all the time, whether it's a story from our client's perspective or, you know, basically case law is stories. And so we don't actually get out of the the idea of storytelling and having a perspective and having an opinion. And all of that is actually built into um, being a lawyer as well. 
It is actually fantastic training. I would say that I, uh, my first degree was in English literature. And again, I love it to bits. I, you know, it was a chance to basically dive into novels and, you know, dissect them in that sort of way. But law school really hones how I express myself, how logical I am in certain things. And basically um, being able to look at a, at, a, at a case or a set of facts in a in a, I guess, less emotional sort of way, like as humans, I, I think that in a lot of ways, um, being able to get outside of your own head and purely work on this um, logical sort of way was, uh, I think, one of the best training that I ever had going into the film industry. Why does Karen gravitate towards creating horror films? Um, but even still, I think uh, between my own tastes, like uh, what I like to read was basically, I think my mom got me the Edgar Allan Poe um, tales of mystery and imagination and just reading the murders on the Rue Morgue and, you know, all of that is, you know, being buried alive and <laughs> as a child, that was a big component. And um, my dad was a huge um, horror and action fan. So growing up watching this, it was very much a part of it. So I don't think I fell very far from the, the, the tree, but it's always been something that I enjoyed. So I, I guess I like freaking myself out, but people always ask, are you really scared with this? It's just where my brain goes. I actually find a lot of comedy, um, a lot of horror quite comedic. So, you know, even when I'm making it, I, I, I'm always distressed when people look at the work and they think of it as being so dark and so scary because I think I add a lot of dark humor to it, but it could be, again, humor that um, my people in the horror industry and the horror genre get, so. <laughs> For sure, that's super interesting. And I uh, I saw a quote that you had, you'd been quoted in and you said that uh, horror films, society needs it. Um, it's a place where you can channel your fears and your nightmares, which I found really interesting. So can you kind of expand on that? Yeah, I think that, um, again, we always need outlets for it. And for my creativity, if I have a very political idea or if I have something that is sort of like bugging me, I tend to put it in terms of a, of a fictionalized version of it. And I, I don't want it to be necessarily quite so obvious, but I love the metaphor that you have in horror. You know, like what, um, you know, when you think of Godzilla, that is this nameless creature that is literally talking about, you know, nuclear you know, destruction, and you've got this basically a monster film, right? And so I love being able to um, be able to take our fears and put them outside of us and actually um, explore it in a way that is hopefully more palatable to a lot of people. So sometimes you can, you can watch these films without it being like, um, you know, again, I love documentaries, but sometimes they can feel very on the nose, like we just ex explained it the way it is. And sometimes the people that need the stories are the people who are not going to go toward those stories, so. Karen wrote and produced the film, The Curse of Willow Song, which premiered at the Vancouver International Film Festival in September of 2020. The film is centered around a young Asian girl who is released from prison. Throughout the course of the film, the young woman has to choose between approaching a dangerous life on the streets or to go back to her former gang lifestyle. What was it like to write, direct, and produce this film? So I don't tend to write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and sit there with it. I tend to do a ton of research. I fall down a lot of rabbit holes. I chase a lot of rabbits and things are interesting to me. And I put it all into like my back, my brain somewhere. And by the time I actually sit down to write, because there's usually because I have to write something, you know, at some point it's a, and every year I do the NaNoWriMo thing that they have, you know, the National Novel Writing Month. So in November, I usually sit down and it's like, okay, whatever was bubbling in my head, you're going to do this in the month. 
And I ended up writing um, the Curse of Willows song as a novella. So it was, and I finished in, in two weeks. So, you know, I still had two weeks to go on my NaNoWriMo month. So I adapted it into a screenplay. And so that was November of 2017. And we actually went to camera with it on the spring of 2018 on my second draft. So that says that was really quick, but basically it's because we self-financed. I took um, the profits that we had made from my second feature Evangeline, which I had also self-financed with a few broadcast sales and tax credits. And we took that money and just pushed it forward. And so that was pretty well why it took so, not so little time. We got it in the can, we got it edited, but then we were in monster development CGI for a year and a half. So that's why we didn't finish until late 2019, early 2020. And then the pandemic hit. So it was a oh weird, gosh. it was a weird. So even getting it in front of um, our cast and crew, we ended up having our first cast and crew screening was a drive-in that we did at the Vancouver Film Studios. They given us a, um, a parking lot and we rented uh, the drive-in equipment sort of thing. And uh, yeah, that was in June or July of, I think it was June of 2020. And then we premiered at the Vancouver Film Festival in um, September. So it kind of was just all of a sudden it just went, but for two years, it was almost in this weird limbo state. It's almost like the film wasn't ready to come out. And then because there's so many themes that are almost pandemic, E and the like the the kind of the racism against Asian people really hit some sort of peak. It's like all of a sudden the film felt like it was of the time. Whereas when I wrote it, I think it would have been out of time. Like if it had come out the way that I had anticipated, I think it would have um, been an interesting story, but not anything that felt so resonant. Yeah, now it feels like something that is uh, of the time, like like I had actually talked about isolation and weird COVID dreams and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, oh no, how did that come out? So <laughs> crazy. And and so what was your, what did you hope that your audience would gain from watching this film? Well, I mean, I always want a good monster film, right? So I that's my first and foremost sort of thing. But I guess there's a lot of political issues that are in there too. It is about... Um, it is set in the Chinese community, but with the new um, new immigration as compared to the classic immigration that we see, this new wave of immigrants has more money, has more, you know, basically the, the, the critiques that we've been getting are the fact that, you know, the new immigrants come, they buy up all of our real estate, and, you know, they, they just kind of use Canada and North America as a, as a rich person's playground. And I really wanted to talk about the fact that there's still systemic racism. It doesn't matter basically from how privileged you seem on, on, on some level. So it was just looking at that, a, a, different, a different experience than the, the usual immigrant story that we tend to get, at least in, in uh, Canada. For sure. And I know that you um, had an almost all Asian cast. So that was, I think that was super, super interesting. And um, did you ever have moments with your cast and your crew kind of ever talk about that while shooting the film? You know, there's a, a very specific scene in which we all, all of a sudden felt Asian. And um, well, we had two actually that were really quite funny. Um, there was one where um, Danny, the girlfriend who is played by Elfina Luck and um, Simon Chin, who plays the, the brother Mission are having just a full on fight, right? 
this is the usual like squabbling that goes on that that happens and i think someone on our crew who was not asian asked do they like each other i was like well yeah that's the way asian that's <laughs> my experience with how like my parents talk to each other they were always screaming at each other right like it was like we we just have a really high decibel of, of talking and so it was funny because it was almost like all the Asians on the crew and on the cast were like yeah that's that's pretty well apropos but we had I hadn't really created it for that in, in mind it just seemed like that's of course they're going to argue about this and in, in high like fairly aggressive ways and then there was another moment where um uh, Danny basically is telling Willow that, you know, people are happy when immigrants come, like the, the immigrant story is that we're kind of plucky, we open laundromats, we open restaurants, you know, what I mean, corner stores, that's where they really like us. But the moment you come in with your McLaren and you wrapped it around the telephone pole because you've been speed racing it, you're not so welcome. You know, and I thought that that was um, something that I was noticing again and again, especially in my Facebook feed, where it have a lot of my otherwise very liberal white friends posting things like oh my god look at all these ends on these Lamborghinis right and it's like oh no like those are my people <laughs> it's like of course all these teen boys are driving these Lamborghinis you know because they're it's it's that sort of thing and all of a sudden there's a hostility that's underneath that I was getting and I remember my producer Karen Wong looking at me at some point and saying are we allowed to say that on camera and I was like I don't think so. I said, we can always edit it out. And I remember uh, Elfina coming up. She's like, these words are just spilling out of me. She goes, I, I feel like, should we be saying this out loud? And we were all kind of in that zone of like, can we say that? Like, it feels like it's kind of, it, it felt very, um, it wasn't something that was expressed very often and nothing that I'd actually seen on TV, especially when you look at a lot of the programs and not a lot there's not that many Asian based um, TV shows or, or otherwise but they tend to have white writers and it gets sort of that voice gets nullified you know like these perspectives it's things that we talk about that make us uncomfortable that are truths that we say to each other that we don't say to kind of outsiders if that makes any sense that it, it's the thing that you don't think you should say out loud because it's not in polite company but it's something that again, is hard to capture unless you have the ability to write direct and kind of put that voice into, into being. The moment you're in a writer's room, I don't know that I would feel comfortable writing that, even if I was like meant to be there as an Asian writer in a, in a TV writing room. Sometimes those truths get very um, watered down. And so I read the article that you had wrote for NSI for Asian Heritage Month, and you said that 2020 was the year that you became an Asian filmmaker. So what was it like to have conversations with people that to ask you about this, given that 2020 was just such a big year that so many things happened? Um, can you kind of run me like what was going through your mind and kind of paint a picture of like how those conversations went with people? You know, I'm still uncomfortable with it after this uh, this year because I don't feel like I have the language. It feels like the ground keeps shifting under my feet. For years, I existed in a sort of um, a privileged bubble where if I didn't actually mention that I'm Asian, I am. But it wasn't in my stories. It wasn't necessarily in my perspective. I was proudly feminist and proudly a genre filmmaker. And those were things that I was very comfortable talking about, like just the female experience. Um, but in this sort of blandish, you know, a, a more 
again, a, a specific lens. I never really put my culture first and foremost and out there. And even now, it feels like, you know, our industry is, is trying to catch up with it by, you know, we need more BIPOC filmmakers, we need more voices, we need more. And so all of a sudden, my phone started ringing off the hook, you know, people offering these things, but they didn't feel authentic. So they were just stories that they wanted to kind of shovel me into or things where I felt like I was tokenized or they didn't know even my work. And they'd be like, we think we, you should be doing this Christmas movie, right? And it's like, because it's got this Asian theme and we really need an Asian director. And I mean, thank you for thinking of me, but that is not what I do. I don't do Christmas movies and I don't do, and I have nothing to do with gingerbread. You know, like that is not what I, that that's my, not my, that's not my perspective or my story. So it felt just as a, a different sort of insulting tokenization that, and, and so that was really, because it was something that I had consciously chosen not to, to dive into. It felt like it was like in the piece that I wrote for the NSI blog, it was the fact that it was not something that I was encouraged to do by my family. And it was not something that I felt comfortable doing because in a lot of ways, I grew up in Brandon, Manitoba. I had a very white experience growing up, apart from the fact that, you know, I, I'm Chinese presenting. So, you know, I come across this, this sort of way, but I didn't have the full cultural uh, again, at this point, I realized that my perspective is just as valid, but it felt like there was only one story that kind of the, you know, the rest of the society wanted, which was your immigration story and your, you know, like the, it was not your growing up in, in you know, basically in a Mennonite community story. It was very much the, you own a corner store, you own, you know, like this is, this is the type of story that they wanted again and again. And it felt very much like that was a different box and I didn't feel like being in that box. Totally. No, absolutely. am. Uh, and how would you suggest people start those conversations about not putting people into boxes um, and avoiding tokenism? You know, I think it is about listening to each other and not having assumptions going forward. And so it is this idea that I know there's a box that needs to get checked. And yes, you have a Christmas movie that you definitely really would want an Asian filmmaker on board with, but it's this idea that we're all interchangeable. I mean, the big joke is always that, well, I'm not that Asian person. You know, you do know my name, right? Because, you know, we all look alike, but that said, uh, that that prejudice actually goes both ways. My grandmother was still alive. I remember her saying, how do you tell those white people apart, apart from their hair color, right? So it was actually part of the, you know, like it, it's, it, it goes on both sides. I don't, I, I don't point fingers when it comes to, to that, to that, but it is about listening to each other and not making those, again, grand assumptions. And at this point, especially in writing, even my own perspective, I think I'm a lot more conscious of my own responsibility and, and you know, also listening and not, I'm not taking on characters that I have no business taking on. And so it's, um, it's, it's been a very eye-opening sort of thing. And the idea that just because optically it looks bad, shoveling someone out there is just as terrible. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I totally it, agree. It, it is like sort of saying, well, you know, our panel's looking awfully white. Do you want to come on board? And I can feel it. I know when it's like, oh, no, they want me to talk about, you know, that. And so it is about seeing each other in our humanity beyond, you know, basically not to say that we're colorblind. It's it's sort of like, I don't see color. I don't see that you're Asian. I'm like, are you blind? Because <laughs> it's quite clear. <laughs> 
on the other hand, it is about acknowledging it without it actually being like, you are only that. Over this past year, who or what continues to inspire Karen to develop horror films and to tell stories? Oh, I don't <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, it's, it's almost like, it's going to sound weird to say me, right? <laughs> no, that's not weird at all. That's it's, so not weird. It's like, basically, again, I lost myself for such a long time is how it felt. The, I felt like I was a series of obligations that needed, you know, like, here's what is expected of you. This is what you're going to accomplish. You know, like there's a checklist of that. And this is the year that I was like, no, I'm just going to enjoy like the fact that, oh, remember, you cook all the time. You're a good cook. You know, you can, you, you, you make things, you, you know, basically like just being, I guess, it, yeah, it is reconnecting with myself in a way that I don't think I've ever had the chance to do in the past. This episode was written and produced by me, Emily Palmer, communications intern at the National Screen Institute. A very special thank you goes out to NSI's Joey Lowen, Liz Hover, Chris Vajner, Ursula Lawson, Kaya Wheeler, and Jessica Gibson. Thank you to the National Screen Institute's corporate supporters. Manitoba Sport, Culture, and Heritage, the City of Winnipeg, to the Winnipeg Arts Council, TELUS, Telefilm Canada, CBC, APTN, Bell Media, Directors Guild of Canada, Manitoba Film and Music, RBC Emerging Artists Project, Documentary Channel, CBC GEM, Centre for Aboriginal Human Resource Development, Indigenous Screen Office, Canada Media Fund, The Winnipeg Foundation, Super Channel, Blue Ant Media, National Film Board of Canada, Stantec, William F. White International, and Company 3. And a very special thank you to all of our other supporters. And a big thank you to you for listening to this episode of The Hats We Wear.